0: Hi there, I'm Mark Icero and this is the Highlighter Podcast. Hello and welcome to the 22nd episode of the Highlighter Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I can't wait to let you know who is on the show today. And you probably already know her. Her name is Barbara Shreve. She is a phenom. She's not only a wonderful math educator here in the Bay Area, but she's also a very close dear friend We met actually in middle school, so we go way back. And today, we could have talked about any of the articles, but you'll see which one she chose. We're focusing this week on journalism, not just about what's going on right now, but also because we have a long past in our own journalism lives, which you're going to hear about in our interview today. So sit back and relax. I hope you enjoy the interview. And thank you so much again for being a listener on The Highlighter Podcast. Hi Barbara, how are you?
1: Hi Mark, I'm well. How are you?
0: Doing great. Thank you so much for having me in your home for this podcast.
1: It's nice to have you here. It's You're smelling one- like new Christmas tree and getting ready for the season.
0: It's uh, it's a beautiful place. So thank you for the audience. Could you introduce yourself?
1: Sure. Um, I am Barbara Shreve. I have been a teacher in the Bay Area for most of my career, so I got taught high school mathematics in two different schools and districts in the Bay Area and then had a chance to work in the district office supporting math teachers in the transition to Common Core in a third district. And just this year, I shifted gears a little bit and stepped out of the classroom and out of the public school system completely to take a fellowship at the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching.
0: That's, that's great. That's really great. I want to know more about how you became a teacher, why you're a teacher, and specifically maybe a math teacher. I was
1: one of those people who figured out or thought they wanted to be a teacher kind of early, so I think it was in eighth grade that I realized that teaching was something I might enjoy Um, and it actually started in part because I didn't think I wanted to sit at a desk every day and my teachers looked like they were having a lot of fun Um, I had a great 8th grade algebra teacher who I really that lit up my interest when I thought about what I wanted to do Um, I took a couple detours along the way but I think I came back to math teaching because as I was getting my credential I got to realize and work with a group of people who helped me see the power of math in students' identity formation and figuring out who they were as learners and people with agency in the world. And I think that is a huge privilege to be part of those moments with with students as they're figuring out who they are and what they're interested in. And I think even if math doesn't end up being the thing they're interested in, feeling smart at it, feeling capable and like they have access to it as a discipline actually carries a lot more weight than just the skills themselves.
0: Yeah, I felt like, because we've known each other for a long time, which we'll get to in a few (laughs) minutes, but I felt like even a while back you were talking about a lot of the things that now math educators talk about, things like fixed versus growth mindset, the idea of of even complex instruction and also academic conversations. Um, how was that, especially earlier in your career as a teacher, when you sort of saw your students light up with this idea of, oh, I can do math?
1: I mean, I think that that moment is amazing. And I think I had the privilege and in some ways just the luck of getting connected with a school where teachers are really collaborative. And really saw student agency as something important to foster within the classroom and beyond the classroom, and that helped to give me opportunities and experiences as an educator to see kids find that kind of agency, find that kind of sense of self in a classroom in the context of our subject. Um, We had students working in groups and talking together about their reasoning and seeing that they could and should argue to try to figure something out. Um, and so rather than trying to see math as something that was very static and just something that didn't have to make sense, um, we were really trying to help them see it as something like what they were learning as part of a connected whole.
0: Yeah. And also in untracked spaces as well. And it seems that yes. you've always at your core been about equity and, and you were connected with what's now the National Equity Project And it just seems that that's part of you as well. Um, Is Was that a conscious decision about sort of working um, in the places that you've worked and sort of like your philosophy? Or did it sort of just come over time?
1: This is a really good question. I think it became conscious, but it wasn't instantly conscious. Um, I had the opportunity to work for the Bay Area Coalition of Essential Schools when I got out of college at a time when they, as an organization, were decentralizing and adopting an equity and democracy principle to, as part of their work. And so being part of those conversations, hearing what people were wrestling with and how people different from myself saw and experienced school um, and had access in educational systems definitely began that process for me. And then going to Mills where part of the um, principles that guided that organization were that um, education is a political act and a moral act and should be constructivist and that that program was very much grounded in a social justice orientation towards urban schooling that also helped to just broaden my scope of understanding um, Mm -hmm. about how education worked and didn't work for different people. And I think that, in seeing that and recognizing the privilege and opportunity that I'd had in my own education, I, um, sought out opportunities to try to make our schools and participate in schools and places that were more equitable.
0: Yeah. I would say that it's similar for me too. Um, maybe I sort of knew I was going in in that direction, perhaps as a young white educator And then there was obviously, for me, going to Berkeley and then doing some teaching in New Orleans. It's sort of built. Mm -hmm. I don't think that I had sort of a a theory of action early, perhaps maybe because of how how I grew up and and my upbringing and also where we also went to school in in the suburbs and... Mm -hmm. By the way, we did go to the same high school and middle school. Yes, we did. And so we've known each other for a long time. And it's it's so great because I don't think that I knew that I was going to be an educator in sixth grade when we met. <laughs> but you, you may have known that?
1: Mm, I think I committed in
0: eighth grade. Okay, there yeah. you go. That's good. I want to talk about when we became closer friends, I would say, is... In high school and specifically around the newspaper. And so some folks who are loyal listeners know <laughs> that we've had Sajal Patel also on this talking about our high school newspaper. And it's just pretty amazing to think about. And, and you were on it and we were both on it for two years, mm-hmm. which was a luxury. And I wanted to ask you, what drew you to the paper and why were you so excited to try to be on that school newspaper? I knew that the newspaper, the epitaph, was this
1: really interesting, like, fun, exciting, extracurricular activity. Um, and I had a friend a couple of years ahead of us who had been on the paper. And so hearing her experiences, I decided to give it a shot. I mean, I liked writing. I'd done a little bit of journalism in middle school. Um, that was a whole different thing that I thought was journalism at the time. but um, And I think I sought that out. And what I found along the way in getting to learn more is that it really shaped who I was as a writer and a thinker in ways that I couldn't have imagined going into it.
0: Yeah, and I still remember we had to be interviewed to yes. be a part of this. It was by application. And it wasn't just for students who got all A's or whatever, because our advisor, Nick Ferentinos, our just amazing teacher and advisor, um, he interviewed us. He wanted a staff that was representative, and also he wanted to know that we were passionate people. I had not met the man, this just amazing person, up until that interview. Did you know who he was? I think I visually knew he was who he was
1: around campus because I had classes a couple doors down, but I had not spoken to him.
0: It's just amazing, because I always liked my teachers, but there's like two or three, and he's one of them, who's just at this higher level. Yeah. And it wasn't just the passion, and not just that he sort of taught us how to do good reporting, but for me, too, like, he taught me how to write, and also to have just such a high standard. And we had this opportunity of a full year of preparation uh, before we even were on the newspaper, and that was a difficult class. That was... And one of the things that we learned that I want to ask you about is just how much we knew or how much we learned about the rights and responsibilities of actually reporting the news of being, we were not sort of kid journalists. Like we did, we did the real thing. Yeah. What do you remember from that?
1: It's interesting that I remember like what the textbook, I don't remember what most of our high school books looked like or anything, but I remember what that textbook looked like. I remember a bunch of the weird, random newspaper history we had to learn to sort of like give us a sense of where we fell in a historical context. And the fact that it wasn't like student newspaper history exclusively, it was like the muckrakers in New York and reporting on the meat industry and like all kinds of things that had shaped our country and social movements. throughout our history that we learned about and sort of were situated in. And I think that to me conveyed some of the responsibility we had because it elevated our work, not on exactly the same par because obviously our circulation was dramatically different than say a New York city newspaper, but it, for me, I think somehow positioned our work with a kind of gravity um, that was very different than like what I'd experienced in our middle school newspaper, which was not trying to report the news, but was trying to be creative writing and, and share all kinds of other, you know, jokes and funny things that wasn't, it wasn't reporting. Yeah, And I think having to learn both about the history and then like some of the laws that we were then also beholden to really helped create a sense of the weight of what we were doing.
0: Yeah, I still remember. So we were still in eighth grade when one one of our classmates came back to our humanities class with the newspaper. And it so happened to be um, a full spread about a student who had HIV. Hmm. And I still remember Nick... In that, in our class, explaining how the paper and specifically the students reported on that story and how actually the principal at that time tried to censor the story, which would have been okay generally by Supreme Court law, Hazelwood, but there was like some California Ed Code, which you, you still remember it? Oh yeah, California Ed Code 48907. So what, what was that and like why, I, I remember even now I feel like such a weight of just power but a good power because of the responsibility. Like what was that all about? So there was the Supreme Court case Hazelwood that had basically said that school
1: administrations could censor student press and student press didn't have the same freedom of speech and freedom from censorship guaranteed by the First Amendment that the professional press did. But for some reason, at some point, California had written into its Ed Code the same free speech protections for student press and student free expression that um, that the First Amendment carried. And so the Hazelwood Supreme Court case didn't apply in California, and I want to say it was six other states, mm-hmm. maybe seven. Yeah. Um, but that... That also was sort of tremendous.
0: Yeah. I mean, Nick just, he just really, really made sure we knew that we were serious Mm -hmm. and that he trusted us, but not just trusted us because we were good people, trusted us because we were trained Yeah, and that we sort of made sure to check our facts, to report. And that was one of the things, I mean he really did trust that we were going to get the facts right mm-hmm. and of course you know now with journalism um, we don't necessarily know that that's going to be true um, you became news editor I did and that's the thing like whenever later on I was a teacher and I wanted to start a newspaper or have kids would come up to me and say let's start a newspaper I would get so excited and then the first thing I would always ask them is what's the news And they would always talk about what's the news like in the country. And I would say, no, what's the news here? And Nick always made sure that we knew that if we were going to be a school newspaper, that we were going to report the news on the campus. Did you feel like there was, how did did you as the news editor find the news that was going on?
1: Oh, you're reminding me how different that was than how we might have thought about it. Because we definitely were very much a local paper. Reporting on our immediate school community context. Mm -hmm. So even when we reported on, like, the Persian Gulf War, we reported on how it was affecting our campus and our campus reaction. Um, I know that we had a process where the student, the cub reporters, the people who were in the training year, had beats, and they had people, they went out and interviewed every news cycle for us to find out what was going on, to see if there was anything we were missing. Um, We got some pieces through our advisor or through other teachers sharing things, things we sort of overheard and decided to investigate. Um, I think sometimes we also heard things through parents who were connected to different parts of the school community and then we would figure out how to verify them. But it was definitely a, it wasn't just a what had landed in our lap. We were out in the, com- in the school community trying to understand what was affecting our campus.
0: Yeah. And it came out every three weeks. And I think the one thing that is we did consider that our audience wasn't just our friends. Yeah. And it was maybe we were maybe a little bit too professional at times where maybe the parents <laughs> liked reading our papers sometimes more than <laughs> our peers. But yeah, like when, when you went out and did a story, it wasn't just, Oh, let's get all of your friends to comment
1: no I mean I remember particularly early in doing this like the most terrifying thing for me was realizing oh I need student quotes in my story that means I have to go to the student printed directory because that's how we contacted each other back then and like start cold calling students just like I'm looking for your take on this issue. Um It was definitely going well beyond our friend group, and we probably weren't sort of allowed to quote our friends mm-hmm. unless they were really particularly germane to the story. Yeah. How did you think about it as a feature editor? I mean, you also, beyond the news, thought about what are the other things that we might delve into more deeply.
0: Yeah, well, I was feature, but so were you um before. So it is interesting, like, the... I still remember some of the major feature articles and they were more like sort of what the New York times does to figure out trends, maybe a little bit after they were really trends, (laughs) but you know, sort of like a, a, a deeper, a deeper look into it. And so we were starting to be in a place, for example, where, there was a lot of pressure, for example, for some parts of the campus to get really good grades, to get into good college, and so I still remember our sleep story, for example. (laughs) We did this uh, sleep story focusing on sleep deprivation, which which I'm very happy younger people now, like I talk to my niece, for example, they're actually starting to get more sleep than Hmm. before. Remember before, it was like, oh, let's stay up all night, yeah. You were never a big proponent of that.
1: I was never physically capable of doing
0: that. It's just so funny. Like, you know, we, I sometimes I just thought that that was... The, so, yeah, that's what feature was, is trying to figure out what was going on on the campus. But I don't remember a particularly scientific way that I mm. did that. And then perhaps maybe we didn't get the whole campus in the feature section, um, as You know, maybe it could have been more representative.
1: I remember that was a struggle for us generally. Like, there were segments of campus that our staff just wasn't as connected to. Yeah. And trying to figure out then how do we represent that portion of campus or reflect their interests in our paper was always hard.
0: Yeah, and we tried to always do it, but it was hard. It was hard. But I totally remember... From that experience for three years, just feeling how important it was to get things right, to write well, and also just the idea of being on a team. And you ended up going to college and also working on the paper there. I did. So, And you were editor at that point, Mm -hmm. so it just continued. For me, not so much. But when I sort of take a look at any article about the media, especially in the last year, it definitely has an opportunity to to get in the highlighter. So I wanted to ask you, which article did you choose for this week?
1: There were a bunch of interesting ones this week. I was definitely drawn to the article about graduation from my background as a teacher, but I think today I'd really actually like to focus in on the Washington Post journalism one because that's the one that keeps coming up in conversation in different places, even last night.
0: Yeah, everybody wants to talk about that article. So it's the one where Project Veritas, which was trying to do a sting operation of the Washington Post, found this person, apparently Jamie Phillips, to go and try to trick the Washington Post to figure out that she was a source, and it ended up not being so. Why did you choose the article?
1: I think when I read it, I found myself uncomfortable in so many different ways that I immediately wanted to process it. And frankly, process it with someone who thought about journalism and press ethics and then maybe also people who don't, haven't had some of that background or to like lens to, to shape their thinking because I was really curious how people thought about it because I think I was uncomfortable about what I was reading both from the perspective of what Project Veritas and this, um, person we're trying to do and represent. And, um, then also from the perspective of the choices that the Post made Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and it was just, just messy.
0: Yeah. I want to hear more about that because generally the story is look at these bad people trying to go against the paper of record, the Washington Post and good job, Washington Post and you think a little bit more in a complex way. So so what do you feel like the reporters did that you aren't necessarily comfortable with?
1: I think my first instinct was that I heard that something had been shared off the record and then still reported, and that immediately made me very uncomfortable mm-hmm. because I sort of think i've been trained that like that is sacrosanct like you once something's off the record you can't touch it Mm -hmm. and the idea that a paper would i suddenly really wanted to know more so i mean i should share like i read the article and actually read the reporting before i went back and watched any of the videos yeah um and i had no i'm not a washington post reader i had no real knowledge of project Veritas or sort of the lengths that it was going to try to discredit reporters mm-hmm. prior to reading that story. Yeah. Um, so the Washington the article leads pretty early that they've made this decision that this um, agreement around being something being off the record was not entered into in good faith and therefore since it wasn't a good faith effort their conclusion was that they could open up and share some of what had been shared off the record. And I just immediately got nervous.
0: Mm-hmm. I hear you because it would seem that they would just discredit, because there's a lot of fact checking and I'm sure mm-hmm. there's all of these anonymous sources that are coming forward. And I guess, why did they decide to rescind the off the record for this case? There must've been a major reason, which is, I guess, why do you think they did that? I mean, do you think that they were purposely trying to go against Project Veritas, or were they trying to play a little bit of offense a little bit, or to try to sort of say, no, this is actually what's happening, and we are a good paper and a good paper of record? Why do you think they did it? I mean, part of me
1: thinks it's really important that they shared that this happened, because I think it's important to share... Also the way like it's it's building media literacy in some ways, of like opening up the lengths to which a paper of repute will go to try to verify something and to try to make sure that they are not there reporting something. So in some ways I think it establishes the credentials of the paper, Mm -hmm. especially in this era where we have allegations and reports coming out about things that have happened sometimes recently, but sometimes many years ago, and they're having really dramatic consequences for the people involved, Mm -hmm. both for like right now, the women sharing their stories, as well as the men who are accused, um, and acknowledge in many cases, acknowledging their behavior, like they have dramatic real consequences. So the fact that this paper is establishing that they really look around before something like that gets made public, I think is really important for building people's belief in the press and then I also think it's important to recognize that in this particular way, this isn't just an individual with malintent mm-hmm. trying to misrepresent, but it seems to be part of an organized effort. Mm-hmm. And so sort of opening up all of those questions to help us all be more critical consumers of what we're reading and thinking about feels like worth a worthy thing to report and certainly report it in a, a thoughtful way. I think where I got also sort of uncomfortable is that they detailed her allegation. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was an interesting choice. I wondered if they could have been... They needed that level of detail.
0: It seems like they said everything. Yeah. They didn't withhold anything. Yeah. I have to say, I am... I was pretty understanding at first of editor Marty Baron's reasoning. Mm -hmm. This idea, as you say, about it was not done... Or it was not done in good faith. There was a malicious attack, so therefore um, being off the record has to be... I sort of understood where he was coming from, but then later there was reporting. So apparently like later in the day or the next morning, I think, there was an additional um, encounter where I think Mm -hmm. a post reporter went up to James Mm O'Keefe and said, Oh, does she work for you? Does she work for you? And then later on they had another encounter and apparently what Project Veritas put on their Twitter was not an overall representation of what happened. And I do believe that the Washington Post has to defend itself, but at the same time, you're not going to win against sort of the folks who might just believe already in Project Veritas. Like, I understand that you need to set the the record straight, but it seems like a little bit of a tit-for-tat. Like, they can just continue doing this. Um, At some point, it sort of has to stop. I just don't know where. I mean, it's so funny, also, Washington Post's new motto, the democracy dies in darkness. Like, it does seem, I mean, (laughs) at least we know where they stand. Whereas CNN, which everybody in Trumpville says that it's fake news, their motto is something like, what, facts first? Or Mm. something like that. Which is not what the Washington Post is trying to do at this point. no. What, you know, let's say that you were a news editor because, you know, you were on our school newspaper. What do you feel, where would you have sort of brought it back a little bit? So you said already the details of the allegation. What else?
1: So one of the things that went through my head was around invasion of privacy and being able, needing to be a public figure in order to report on certain aspects of one's life. And I wondered to what degree this particular individual, Jamie Phillips, had made herself a public figure such that this whole thing got reported on. Um, and so what I took away from the story was very grounded in her personally, because a lot of what I, the project Veritas and the videos of what happened with James O'Keefe later were not directly connected to the original reporting that you included in the, um, mm-hmm. highlighter. Mm-hmm. I had that question of like, because it didn't seem like her connection with that organization was acknowledged by anyone that just felt, it felt a little bit gray area to me. I also know that like, you're never going to, it's unlikely that you'll get people to acknowledge wrongdoing publicly and on the record and like verify, you know, for someone to validate that, yes, she was doing this at the behest of another organization, but it, somehow felt more centered on the individual than the organization to me as i read the reporting maybe Uh, that's just because i watched that video like two or three times just really
0: processing what was happening i think that's very smart analysis for example they reported on her and they reported right when it happened the same day and they were still working on the story about project veritas and then they And as we know now, nothing lasts for more than like 24 minutes, Mm. not 24 hours anymore. And so I agree with you. Like they focused on this, on this woman and basically totally made her seem totally like a fool. And she also has to, she, she also has to account for what she did too. But yeah, notice how Project Veritas and James O'Keefe, like, they haven't necessarily been as attacked, I think, as, as, uh, as Jamie Phillips was. Mm -hmm. Is that what, what you're getting at a little bit?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, it did seem very pointed at this one individual and not sort of at a more general trend, or this is an example of Mm -hmm. a larger issue in the way that I read the words Mm -hmm. and yet, I don't think anything about what she did was okay. Yeah. Like I don't want to, as much as I might have questions about exactly what ended up in the story, I don't sit knowing all of the stuff they opted not to put in either. Yeah. Yeah. And I really don't think it's fair to our free press and our, um, sense of needing the watchdog free press in the world for people to be so intentionally trying to spread false information.
0: Yeah. And as an extension, I did want to ask because we come from this, we come from a time not just that we were trained but we come from a time that was a little bit more secure with absolute truth and even our social studies teacher Roger Halstead, always asked is it relative or is it absolute <laughs> and i don't think that any of us could have predicted where we are now and so i love this kind of inter- uh this kind of article and put it in the highlighter because I'm obviously interested, but I I feel like it's a major issue of our time, whether it's about journalism, but more important, like, will facts matter? And I want to feel hopeful, and then that's why I want to ask you, are you feeling hopeful with reporting and with journalism? Is there a way out of our current mess if good people like they are continue to do good work?
1: I don't know if it's a way out but I do feel like good people continuing to do good solid work is absolutely critical like I know that I'm not as I'm not as rigorous a reader as you are I'm not as part of the reason I love the highlighter of it helps point me to things that I should be knowing and thinking about but I'm not positioned where I push myself to go out and read things from five different sources and try to arrive at my own Understanding of as close to what I think real truth is. Like, I know that's my training as a historian like you, but that's not something in my everyday life I find feasible. Um, so having people whose profession that is feels really, really critical to me. And I think I wonder how our education system connects to that and helps people become aware of their own, like our young people as they're growing up become aware of their own blinders, their own viewpoints and how that colors how they take in information and also helps them just become critical consumers of what's out there in the world so that when they're reading only one or two sources they're at least asking questions or being uncomfortable if something doesn't
0: um, seem fully upfront. Mm-hmm. yeah reading is believing <laughs> as i always say um, I am really happy, Barbara, that we've known each other for quite some time. Very good. Than we we're going to admit, <laughs> right? <laughs> and also, just very happy that you are a loyal subscriber to the Highlighter and wonderful educator. And I want to thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you, Mark. This was fun and a little nerve wracking, but I really appreciate that you put the highlighter out into the world for so many of us and then are also working to bring us together in conversation around it because it's one thing to be taking in information yourself, but it's a whole different thing to try to begin to actually engage with that in conversation with others. So I think that's a
0: gift you give all of us. Thank you. That's very nice. I hope you have a great day. You too. I want to thank Barbara yet again for being on the show. It is great to have wonderful friends. So thank you, Barbara. Also, I appreciate everybody for listening to the show. Keep listening. And actually, if you have any comments, positive or constructive, please let me know by emailing me at mark at highlighter.cc. One last thing before I go, we have the third highlighter happy hour this Thursday, this time in San Francisco. It's going to be at Dalva and it is on Thursday. Be- Beginning at five thirty. So, if you want your free ticket, head on over to highlighter.cc/events. I hope you all have a wonderful week. We have a great week in store for us. And on Thursday at nine ten, please be looking out at your email for the latest rendition of the Highlighter newsletter. Have a great week, everybody.